This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Tonight we're going to talk about two films, Once You Know and Beyond Zero. What happens once you know about climate change? We will hear about people who have had a spear-in-the-chest moment and have been reborn. We'll talk to Emmanuel Capelin in France about collapsology, about Joanna Macy and how we need to evolve as we face the end of our industrial civilization and a new social contract is born. And then I'll speak to Nathan Havey in USA, whose film Beyond Zero is about Ray Anderson and his carpet company called Interface. After Ray's spear-in-the-chest moment about climate, his company was reborn. So, appropriately for Easter, tonight's show is all about regeneration. Once You Know is the name of Emmanuel Kaplan's film at the Transition Film Festival. He is speaking to me from France. What I loved in this film is Emmanuel taking us to meet people like Dr. Salim Ulhaq in Bangladesh and Richard Heinberg in the USA. These are people I've interviewed and just to hear how they're carrying on their climate work lifted my heart. Emmanuel finds in them the same courage and energy that I noticed and he asks them how you can live once you know. So welcome Emmanuel to the Climate Action Show. Tell us what it's like where you are today. Well it's uh, early dawn, Uh, there's a beautiful orange sunrise and everything is very very green and very moist because we've had a series of very, very heavy rains, an increase of over, over 40% in precipitation with, with floods everywhere. I'm in the Dordogne Valley here in the western France. We've all seen films about the end of the world, you know, usually very sensational and playing up the greed and cruelty of all the main actors. I hate those films. They're so unreal. And yet they dominate a lot of people's fantasy world about what's happening. Why did you make your film? It's a documentary. It's completely different. We have a, a, a term, a new word that's come, come out in France called collapsology. Um, collapsology is the study of collapse on a, a rational basis. Uh, but also taking into account all of the emotion, emotional aspects that this, the possibility of the ending of our um, industrial civilization uh, brings out. And um, I thought that it was really important that we uh, uh, have a national and international conversation on that very new uh, topic, um, which is slowly spreading to other countries in in England, now they have a movement around what's called radical adaptation or deep adaptation, which is also on the, the hypothesis that we are indeed on a, a path towards collapse. And, and how do you deal with that personally? And how do you deal with that collectively? And I think if you want to bring in a more subjective 
aspect to uh, the topic of collapsology, then you have to start with uh, the question of how does collapse uh, explode in my own mind? Because we say that collapse is a, like a grenade. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a grenade word. It ex- you hear it and it explodes in your mind mm-hmm. in different ways for everyone. Everyone. We all have our own phobias and fears and, and, and uh, hopes as well as, as to what's going to save us uh, against which dangers. And so in the beginning of the film, the first, the opening sequence, I try to be very honest and to show how does that grenade explode in my mind and, and to show the kinds of images. So we have uh, historical archives that, that come out of the past. They're also related to my own history. What do you hear? What do you see when you hear, uh, collapse? And that's really was the basis for the whole quest. Once you know you can never be the same, since you are changed, how do you want to be changed towards something, you know, more positive and transformative or towards depression and, you know, just feeling that you're stuck? And that's what brings me towards these other people like Salim, like Richard, like you, that you mentioned, like Susie, uh, Suzanne Moser, who's a German geographer, or uh, towards uh, Jean-Marc Jancovici, who's a French um, energy expert. What they all have in common is that they have been facing that word or similar ideas of, of the possibility of, of an end to a, our great human experiment for 30, 20, 30, maybe yeah. some 40 years. And how do you, what kinds of coping mechanisms do you put in place, both personally and, and collectively? And what I love about them all is that they have these two sides that are up to their, their work that's very developed, both personal and collective. Yeah. Well, what impressed you uh, about one of them? Just tell me one of them. You loved Susie. There's a lot of filming of her smiling, uh, you know, and you just obviously loved following her and listening to what she had to say. What was the, you know, the seriousness that you discovered in some of those people? I lived in Berkeley for a few years, and there is a, an American eco-psychologist thinking and writing and working on these issues since the 70s, so for nearly 50 years. Her name is Joanna Macy, and she's quite famous as an eco-psychologist and, and, and who has worked on the, the, the ideas of the deep ecology movement, which says that um, the, the, the environment, the nature has a right to, of its own to exist and not just uh, for its utilitarian value to, to humans. So it's taking a biocentric view of what the world instead of an anthropocentric or human-centered view of the world. And I really wanted her to be part of the film, and I went to see her, and she was probably like 90 years old, and she just finished another film. And she <laughs> said, oh, Emmanuel, I'm an old lady. I'm old and tired, and, you know, I'm, I'm done, you know. But you should go and see Susie. Susie is just wonderful. She's beautiful, and she's such incredible energy and you're going to love her. And um, the next day, um, that, that was in Berkeley. And so I, 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 I drove down to Santa Cruz where she lives. I felt such a connection and I identified so much to what she was saying that I decided that for sure she was going to be one of the characters or one of the protagonists of the film. And then I followed her over several years. Every time we had an opportunity, uh, since I wouldn't fly around, um, we would take advantage of of her having to go to different con- congress or mm. so as a geographer she works on vulnerability and adaptation to climate change in general and to sea level rise in particular so she works with coastal communities 
of the East and West Coast in the United States. And so she has been working with the whole question of how much do you fight, stay your ground, and when do you decide to leave? And these questions of the grief that goes with losing your home, your home, your sense of identity, your community has been something she's worked for many years. In parallel to that, she works with practitioners, people who are urbanists, who are urban planners to help them plan for the long future. She's seen that there was such a, a disconnect between the kinds of emotions that all of these conversations at the community level were bringing out, but the lack of emotion in her more professional work. And so slowly, what I love about Susie is that slowly she started including emotions through humor, through uh, more personal accounts in her scientific presentations. And that's what's fantastic about her is she really is a synthesis of the rational mind and the emotional mind. There's a little bit in your film where <clears throat> you're filming her. You must be, can't see you, but you must be filming her. And she turns around and she said, don't miss that sky. And she just says, don't miss that sky, and then we see a bird. And I thought, that's good, because she seems to be able to live in the moment as well. Don't miss this moment, because that's what I feel with all this climate change, which I've been doing for 10 or 11 years now, like this radio. I, I in fact, enjoy life more. It's so precious. Every single thing is so precious, because it's normal, you know, normal weather, normal climate, you know, spring in the right at the right time of year I'm delighted by it but she had that thing too look don't miss the sky and I think you caught quite a few things in your film like that listen now what what led you to Extinction Rebellion I wonder do you see some strategy behind their protests well first what I must say is that I've never uh, identified as an activist um I was uh, very concerned but um, you can have different kinds of emotions when 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 it comes to climate change or the future or how you project into uh, uh, the future. And um, fear uh, is one, uh, these par- 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 paralysis. Um, mm. um, sadness is another one. Anger is another one. And anger is often it's the energy that's driving activism. You know, anger because there is a feel, a sense of injustice. Injustice is a very strong driver of Salim, one of the characters in the film. And what was powerful for me is that there was a real intersection or going back and forth between my real life and the film and the film had a very powerful influence on my own life mm. so it led me to do things that I had no idea were going mm-hmm. to happen I was just filming my life and I started doing things that I st- because I was meeting Salim and saying okay you know he's been at every single cup conference since yeah. the beginning and and he is relentless. And this is what needs to happen. This is what we need to do. This is the kinds of courage we need. And then I was, as I was working on these, these questions of, you know, bringing emotion and, and the rational mind together and, and how that spurs you into action, the Extinction Rebellion came into being. And it became part of the story just very naturally. So I, I joined the French branch of the movement and I became very involved. I'm still very involved. And what happened was that the opening, the, the beginning, the, what's called the Declaration of Rebellion, uh, mm. which is the official beginning of, of activities of a, a branch in a country, became sort of the ending of the film, the, the last sequence. So it's kind of like a promise. You don't know what's going to happen to this movement, whether we'll, we'll, it will we'll grow bigger and become a mass movement at, or not. And so that's where we come to strategy. And I think that you really need to to listen to the 
what people are going through. And this was actually the message that many years earlier, Susie had already for me. She said, you know, stop asking because she's also working a lot on, on climate change communication. Stop talking to people, asking them uh, what they think about climate change because all you're going to get is, is, um, mm. debate. Um, you need to tell them, ask them how they feel about it. Uh, and this is where you can find a place to connect. Mm. And, um, and I think, this is what I find interesting uh, with uh, Extinction Rebellion as a movement is that they have a whole aspect which is called regenerative culture, mm -hmm. which is about taking care of each other before action, in action, after action, but also more generally listening to that more emotional or intuitive side mm -hmm. of us and, and not shying away from it because, oh, okay, this is the irrational mind, so it's a dangerous place, we shouldn't go there. We think it's, it's part of the, the, the human psyche and it needs to be heard. Many people think that we'll manage the climate disruption like we've managed the pandemic. You know, it's been terrible, but we've sort of managed mm -hmm. it. But people in your film say we must prepare for much worse than that, like crop failures, like the bees <laughs> collapsing, that sort of thing. How should we re prepare? How should we prepare? I think it depends who we is. We as individuals in rich countries, we in Bangladesh is not the same we. We are all on the same boat, but the boat definitely has different levels and there are different classes. And I wouldn't say there is not two, but probably three or four different classes. And people at the bottom of the ship, uh, what they need to do and what they are already doing is pressing with both hands on the hull so that the water stops pouring in because they are already drowning. Uh, there are already people who are being you know, losing their lives and, and being pushed out of their their territories, their lands, by climate change. So what they need to be doing is to keep fighting like they already are and uh, also seek climate justice, I think. What we need to be doing in the rich world, and that, that world is also quite unequal, and so I think that also asks questions of equality within countries, within nations. But uh, what I think we need to do is to face the fact that we need to have national and inter international conversations. And I think... The pandemic has made that possible because before it was too far remote. But now I think it is possible about what would be a collapse politics. And what collapse politics is, is not asking whether or not we want things to, uh, what things like degrowth and things like um, re reduced uh, buying power or reduced consumption, reduced freedom of, of movement. Uh, but how we're going to deal with them on a collective level so that they happen as smoothly as possible. Mm -hmm. So it's not how do we want it or not, but how do we manage it? Because it's going to happen whether or not we we want it. Yeah. Um, and one of the characters in the film, Jean-Marc Lancovici, um, who is, is very straight-faced and, and, and asks very difficult questions, very hard questions, um, says, um, this is what's called l'optimisation sous contrainte, uh, optimizing under constraint. Mm -hmm. And this is what's, this is what, what it's about. And what that means is we're going, we're, we're not going to be able to, to hold on to everything that we've take, come to take for granted. Mm -hmm. And we are going to have to lose some things. And I think it's very important we choose which things to leave behind and which things to keep with us because some things are essential to keep with us. If we want to have a social contract where people want to continue living as societies and continue 
um, accepting some things from their neighbors uh, and from their their other their fellow citizens because they feel that they are being connected by something that is meaningful, even though everything they used to take or part of what they used to take for granted is being taken away from them. I think um, this is what we need to do. Yeah. I like the idea of optimization under constraints because we know that. We've been through that. Most of our civilizations have been through terrible deprivation, the depression, the war, um, in living memory of people. Um, And it's it's often their finest hour. We we mythologize it as the finest hour. We certainly know how to do it. That's why I don't like those dystopian films that make out that everybody's greedy and selfish and ready to kill each other and, and cunning. I mean, that's not my experience of life. It's not, you know, many people talk about how, how they understand the common good. And when there's a crisis in Australia, we have plenty of bushfires and floods. We see magnificent response. So I feel that climate change should bring out the best in us. It could. But as you say, it needs to be planned and therefore you need to have that discussion. That's why I'm, I love it that you've made this film and, and the more you talk about it. We don't talk about that at all in Australia. I haven't heard anyone in the media talking like that about it, you know, making a plan. Because we're not back against the wall yet. Uh, not, we're not back against the wall exactly. yet. Exactly. No, uh, that's right. Hi, I'm David Bradbury, activist filmmaker and proud of it. And any time I'm in Melbourne, I love to do an interview with 3CR and uh, bring you folk up to speed with what I'm doing in different parts of the globe or in, in my own, own turf in Australia. It's really important that we have community radio and that you support it and you get out behind 3CR and the events that they promote and to keep you informed against the uh, mainstream media that wants us to keep our eyes shut and to go back to bed. <laughs> you show in your film is um, transition towns and they are exploring new ways of cooperating and I think they're kind of under the radar they're not protesters they're quietly doing something new probably something quite old as well and I wonder is this a form of climate action for you and does it bring out the best in people? Joanna Macy brought it very simply she said we need to have a thriving world or a more uh, sustainable world we need um, three pillars of action. And one is holding actions, actions that uh, draw red lines and say, we will not go beyond these boundaries. And, and these are, you know, activism and protest and, 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 and being against something that needs to stop destruction of ecosystem services uh, or destruction of a stable climate that makes everything else possible. And then we also need uh, a change of, of consciousness. We need education, you know, the kind of work you're doing, and we need a new narrative and, 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 and giving meaning to all these changes uh, of this great turning we're in. And then the third part of the, the work, which is the one you just mentioned, is uh, alternatives, uh, offering uh, different ways of, of doing things, um, changing systems, uh, whether they are food systems, um, communication systems, transportation systems. This is really what I try to do in the film. We see the change of consciousness of one character, which is me, 
we also need, sorry, we have my, my son coming with his radio. <laughs> <laughs> his own little portable radio. And I uh, hope uh, it's not disturbing the, the, the recording. Constructing alternatives is, is not sexy. It takes a long time. It's about working with your neighbors on a very long-term basis. Change is very incremental. In, in the village where I live called Sayon, which is at the foot of the Alp Mountains, we are really trying to work on how do we reinvent today uh, or reinvent tomorrow while we still have to deal with today. And, you know, I think that's really interesting. It's just confronting reality. So we've had a uh, participatory democracy platform from which to take decisions throughout our, the six-year mandate. And that really has changed the dynamics in uh, the village I think the, 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 this village experiment around democracy is really central to what we were talking about earlier, uh, this yes. conversation of what are we going to keep and what do we need to leave behind. Yeah. I know this because I interview a lot of the school strikers, and I interviewed one of them this morning, and she she said, well, we can't vote, and so we have to find other ways to get our voice out. And it's our future that's being decided by the people in Parliament. They're all mostly old, much older, and white, and men. And, you know, now we have people of colour and and much more women leading, and it doesn't represent us. So I was really impressed by the French Citizens' Assembly. I did a few interviews with people about that, and they went through such a long process. It wasn't 30 years. It was nine months, but it was like a real gestation. It was like a pregnancy, nine months of learning. Every expert they could find. And the person I interviewed saw it as different from becoming activists. She said some of us have entered politics after too and become mayors or local in local government. But she said if um but she feels the result has been good because some people who went in very um they're not going to sacrifice anything. That was their first attitude. When they came out they were saying things like, No, I'm I'm prepared to ca- take a cut in my living. I understand now what it's for for this common good. And she said if we send a Email, for example, to President Macron, he writes straight back. So we have the ear of the government. We feel that we're citizens with some platform. And I wondered, did you find other examples like that around the world or in your village or in France? It seems to be much more advanced than here. Examples we found to inspire ourselves were from other parts of the world, uh, in the U.S., I think you can find this tradition of citizen participation in, in different kinds of, of contexts. In the U.S., you have, you know, the, the duty being part of the jury. I, I'm not sure in Australia if you yes, have that we as do. well. That we you're do. being called yeah. to be. So I think, I think, I think, I think we need to have exactly that from for many other things yes. that you are being called upon, not just to go to war or yeah. to judge people, but to um, make hard decisions. Yeah. And you're not going to get out of the duty of taking that decision for everyone. But maybe not at the national level because not everybody can take that decision. So what I'm working on right now in France with Extinction Rebellion and other movements, uh, the Gilets Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Jackets, uh, our local Yellow Jacket or Yellow Vests groups and us are trying to work together to bring the social and the environmental together on bringing the CCC, the Climate Citizen Convention, that you were mentioning earlier, to bring it down to the local level and say, okay, so they've made these 150 recommendations to the government at the national level. Some of those recommendations are not being heard because Mm -hmm. the government thinks we're not courageous enough as a nation to make those changes. (laughs) But we're going to show the government at the local level that we are willing to talk about these changes and actually talk about 
the very concrete things we need to put in place at the local level to make that a reality. Mm. And of course, it's just, it's a, it's a rhetorical exercise. We're not, we're not that assembly we're putting together doesn't have any power. People are ready to bring it down to, to earth and bring it down to when it's going to hit them, you know, hit their pockets here, hit their way of lifestyle. What, what specifically are the, are they doing or are you doing? We really wanted it to be relevant to the people locally. So I'm in a very rural area where you have a lot of, uh, um, agriculture. So we wanted to talk about some of the agricultural recommendations uh, as to, you know, uh, land use um, changes as well as uh, how, what the relationship to, uh, uh, between agriculture and the general public, what kind of food uh, we buy, where do we buy it, uh, what we call the circuit court. Circuit court are uh, kind of like um, producer to consumer direct buying. And uh, all these kinds of, of, of things that we need to put in place everywhere uh, to shorten the length that uh, food travels to bring down their uh, uh, emissions levels, but also uh, bring down what we have a, a huge problem in France, but we, it's, it's like this everywhere, uh, which is called artificialisation des sols. It's the fact that we're ch- it's land use changes. We're turning uh, good, fertile ground into concrete and we're making it dead. And that is a huge problem. And every seven years, we, we have a whole uh, uh, region of France that's being the equivalent of one region of France that's being covered in concrete or asphalt or roads or parkings, parking lots. And th- that is a huge problem because as long as you have fossil fuels and you can produce a lot of food on a little land, yeah. then you're fine. When, when you start to have to produce for that, the very large population we have become in the world yeah. and you don't have fossil fuels, you need that land. Oh, wow. Well, I hope you can report back to us another time when you've developed that a bit more in your place. I want to just finish on something lovely that we did once. Our most popular podcast, I was surprised. It was about Albert Camus. It was about the plague. Well, it was in the COVID crisis and what he saw in a place called Le Chambon. And I had a philosopher who was who was an expert on the Holocaust, and he talked about the people of Le Chambon who smuggled Jewish people out of Le Chambon into Switzerland, and they did it in a very strategic way. They were committed to each other. They just trusted each other. They passed messages to each other. They didn't have any official organization, just the church, the minister of the church sort of coordinated them, but they managed to smuggle out a great number of people. And he said... It was very exceptional in Europe what they did, but for them it was normal because they were people who were just, that was part of their religion, it was part of their ideology that that's what you must do, you must save refugees, and they did it. And apparently Le Chambon is still quite famous as a place for refugees. So I love that story when we did it, but I was surprised that it was the most popular podcast because it was really philosophical and quite long. But that's the one everyone wanted to hear. And I asked some people, and they said, we want to know how people prepare for the worst. And so I think that's why your film is so interesting, that you are actually trying to help people prepare for the worst. So could you finish by just speaking to us about that, about what you've learned about this emphasising the cooperative and the good and the, you know, how we can quickly learn what we need to learn to survive? Mm. Big questions. I I know. I think we need to first make a difference between an emergency 
and the long emergency. An emergency is uh, Hurricane Katrina, is the fires in Australia last year. Contrary to what the media often show, as you said earlier, the very, very dominant response is solidarity, people helping each other, people bringing food to each other, saving each other, and not rioting and looting. This is part of the story, absolutely, but it's a very minor part of the story. Because in this kind of context, we are still operating in a mindset that, that is abundant. We have abundance of, of goods around us, and suddenly it's being taken away from us, and so we want to share from that, that abundance. Okay, so I have some leftover foods that I want to share. So, uh, and there is a very high level of, of trust more generally in the culture, even though we can feel it's, you know, we've become more individualistic. We have a very high level of, of confidence and trust. We feel that we can walk in the streets and we're not going to get uh, killed by our neighbor and, and, and this kind of uh, security, uh, general security that, that we have the chance to experience in our countries. In the long emergency, and so, and so this kind of response is, it's, it's, it's a reality and can definitely be work off of that and use that to say, okay, this is what we want. We want to help each other as much as we can. This is where uh, our, our tendency is. So that's very hopeful and exciting and, and it's something to work off of. But in the long emergency, and we're experiencing exactly that in France right now and I think in other countries with you know second waves of the COVID and confinement is the, the kind of excitement and and, and bringing, you know, pulling together that happened mm. in the first wave, we're not seeing as much of in the second wave because people uh, grow wary and, and, you know, what was on their minds, you know, other people and how they're, you know, who are in the streets, you know, the homeless were in the streets who were being exposed to COVID and going out and giving them food. All of that me brings meaning in an emergency. But as the emergency draws longer, it becomes harder and harder to, to create meaning because there is no horizon, there is no long-term vision. And so I think really that, that I think that's the message I have with the film. I try to say it um, not with my big boots and, you know, I try <laughs> to say it throughout the film, a, a bit everywhere, is we need to have a vision because otherwise chaos is going to take care of it for us. And, and that vision is something that is positive, even though it is quite different from what we have grown used to. And, and I'll try to summarize it in a sentence. It's scary, but I think it's hopeful. Uh, right now, we have two very different kinds of discourses. We have a social discourse, at least in France, and I think maybe to some extent in, in, in countries like Australia, is one, one discourse, which is that uh, we are seeing increasing levels of inequality, and it's quite unfair, and it's, it's really actually tearing at the fab, at this, our social fabric. And we need to be very careful because high, high levels of inequality are going to uh, kill the trust that's necessary to make a society uh, 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 stable and, and vibrant. So they say, oh, we have a huge cake, a huge economic cake, and we just not need to have it better shared. That's one discourse. And the other discourse, which we will call the environmental discourse, is no, 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 no. The problem is not that it's... It's not well shared, or at least that's not our main problem. The main problem is that this economic cake is too big. We need to bring down the cake. And so those are very different discourses. And someone on a Facebook um, chat actually had a fantastic sentence that I feel 
has the capacity to bring these two visions together. And he says, just one little sentence, crumbs are right, but crumbs for everyone. And what that means is, as the economic cake is going to be reduced in size, not because we are willing to do it, because we're going to put in place all the necessary measures to um, dwarf the, the, the climate crisis, but just because we have energy depletion that's going to do it for us, probably, unfortunately, uh, we are going to have to also think about how do we share what's left. Mm-hmm. And, and if we're able to do that, then I think we are in for a very different kind of society in the future and a hopeful society where we actually reach some of the um, ideals and goals that we had earlier, uh, but we, which we were able to earlier in history but, uh, mm. with some of the great ideologies, uh, social ideologies of the 20th, 20th century, but which we pushed off because we said, as long as we have abundance, yeah. everybody can just do what they want and, and, uh, the trickle down effect will will take care of it. You know, we'll, we'll be able to. Even the poor will have, as the the tide rises, all the boats rise with the tide, yeah. and, and we'll be able to take care of equality that way. And I think, unfortunately, we're not going to have that mechanism for us in a degrowth imposed world. So we've been speaking to film director Emmanuel Kaplan in France, and his film, Once You Know, is a marvellous thing not to be missed at the Transitions Film Festival. Just to finish, Emmanuel, would you like to tell us if you're going to do part two to this film or if you, you know, want to continue with this story, what, where would you take it? <laughs> a, a few months ago, when people asked me this question, I would say, no way, I am done. You know, I've yeah. spent eight years on this film. I've lost so much in the process. I've gained a lot as well. I'm tired. I'm going to rest for the next 10 years. <laughs> now, actually, once you put your finger in, in the machine, you know, uh, it's very hard to stop. And uh, not the machine of documentary filmmaking only, but also of, of the issues we've been talking about because they're so existential. And what I'm interested in, it, in at the moment, and I'm not sure what form it's going to take um, formally, I don't know if it's going to be a documentary, I think so, is the question we spoke earlier of the the climate politics uh, and the the collapse politics uh, of tomorrow. Uh, we ha- there are there's a number of people who are working on these issues very seriously, but it's they're in in they're hidden in offices somewhere yes. in universities. You don't see them. Uh, but we have people who are very seriously working on how do you reconstruct the social contract that binds us all together so that you have social stability in an unstable world. And I'm very interested with those new ideas and how uh, politics will evolve once we're past the time of abundance. That's fantastic. Thank you. I think that's very valuable. And as you said, we need a vision. We need a blueprint. You know, people need to know where we're going if there's something like that ahead and then, as you said, we need to know what we need to save on the way down. So thank you very much for talking to us. Uh, It's been very nice to meet you, Emmanuel Kaplan. This is a message of solidarity for all the women out there from Think Again on 3CR. For all the women who still, after all this time, are underpaid and undervalued, who carry most of the burden of caring work, who live precariously and carry all the risk while others walk off with the gold. This is a message of solidarity for you because you are the true gold. You are not the loot to plunder by self-entitled born to rulers. 
So always know your value and remember together we are strong. Here's a song from David Rovix. It's called If There's a Tomorrow. The death toll keeps mounting Each time I turn on my phone Another mass shooting Another free fire zone The failed states of America White supremacist rule A society riven With victims and tools The fires keep burning Completely out of control Makes you miss the old days Of the ozone hole The snow is all melting The lakes of Greenland The best hope that I have I hold in my hand If there's a tomorrow Then when yesterday's through You have me And I have you We might have to leave town Or maybe we'll fall Beneath a hail of bullets At the shopping mall Perhaps we'll be arrested Perhaps they'll pass us by But wherever we might be When we look up at the sky If there's a tomorrow Then when yesterday's through You have me We'd like it to be different But this is the place we find The one we inherit The one we're in now Whatever might come of the future Why, when, how If there's a tomorrow Then when yesterday's through You have me And I have you If there's a tomorrow Then when yesterday's through You have me Welcome, Nathan. Tell us what it's like where you are right now. 
Sure. Um, it is uh, uh, just coming out of a big cold snap in, I'm in Boulder, Colorado, uh, and we have uh, a quite a lot of snow predicted for this evening and tomorrow. So that's, that's, that's where we are at the moment. Nathan's film is about an old-style carpet factory called Interface and its founder, Ray Anderson. And listeners might remember Paul Hawkins spoke to us when he published his book, Drawdown. And this is Paul Hawkins' comment on Interface. He said, when it was an old factory, he said it sucked up petroleum-based raw materials for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Its finished product lasted little more than a decade, and at that point it will be ripped out and discarded, joining five billion pounds of carpet each year in landfill, where it would remain for 10,000 years. Now, Anderson read Hawkins' book called Ecology of Commerce, and uh, apparently his thinking evolved. Nathan, tell us what happened next when the owner realised he needed to take some climate action. Sure, just just a, a piece of of, of colour on this. Of, at the time, before Ray read um, Paul's book, there was a sales boast uh, that that they would make uh, that uh, you could take a piece of interface carpet, you could put it in a pile of compost and leave it there for a few seasons and take it out again, and nothing would have happened to it. <laughs> that was that was that was a sales boast, right? And so um, Ray reads Paul's book, and uh, what happened was what what Ray came to call his spear in the chest moment uh, where, where he, he was an engineer by training and, and his engineer's brain just sort of accepted the case that Paul Hawken makes in that book, which is that you know, all of Earth's major life support systems are in decline and that the, the, the chief culprit uh, for that is, is industry. And Ray, as, as a, a captain of industry, the, the founder that created this company, uh, he stood there indicted. He said his, his quote is, I, I stood indicted as a plunderer of the earth. And so um, the reason he read the book was because he was asked to make an environmental vision speech for a brand new environmental task force at Interface. And um, he read this book and came up with this incredible environmental vision. You know, he was sweating it before that. No idea what to do. But but he, you know. People walked into that meeting expecting a little recycling, um, but what Ray laid out is essentially a complete transformation of the industrial economy as we know it. Uh, and so uh, here, here he comes, and that's that's how it began. Yeah, well, that actually started quite a long time ago, and I think you said that this story sort of got lost. It should be such a beacon for everybody, but it's more or less not common knowledge, not in Australia anyway. And I wondered how did this company get to zero fossil fuel energy? zero greenhouse gas emissions, and zero waste to landfill? Uh, over 25 years of very meticulous uh, work uh, engaging their employees, engaging their supply base. Um, you know, one of the major innovations for them was in, uh, in nylon. And nylon is a material that is as energy intensive to produce as aluminum is. Um, and uh, when they started this journey, nylon was the fiber that they used in all of their carpet. And the scientists at the time said it's impossible to recycle nylon. Uh, and any recycled material would be seen as a contaminant in the process. And so for, for, for a decade, they worked with their suppliers saying, if, if, if somebody can hack this one, you will get all of our purchasing. You know, and it's, it's a big company, but it's not a big company by big company standards. So they were able to lean a little bit on the market pressure there, but it's not like it's a 
It's, it's not like some of the really big companies, but uh, there's a, an Italian company named Aquafil that uh, that ended up being able to crack that nut. And Aquafil now can create 100% recycled nylon, which was the major piece for, for Interface to be able to close the loop and actually harvest old carpet off of people's floors instead of harvesting new petroleum to make new nylon. Right. And so that, that helped them to close the loop. And that right there is, is just this massive piece of, of the technological innovation that they had to figure out to, to be able to make that progress. Now, I think that it's fair to say that interface is within the margin of error on zero. I don't think that they are at zero, zero yet, but when you consider the influence that they've had, you know, that fiber that Aquafil developed for them is now being used by Prada and Gucci and all kinds of other things. And it's really interface that, that uh, gets a lot of the credit for getting Aquafil to focus and, and, and make that innovation. So if you factor in the influence they've had on other manufacturers, then they're, they're well beyond zero. And you mentioned recycling. I mean, the model for this company is that they're floor tiles, aren't they? Carpet tiles. And you buy them, buy them. And when they're worn out in your office, what happens? Um, They, uh, first of all, tiles as opposed to broadloom. Right. So in, in 1973, when the company was founded, it was all broadloom carbon. So if there was a coffee spill or there was a, uh, you know, if anything happened to it, you'd eventually have to rip out the entire broadloom carpet and replace the whole thing. So from the get-go, having a, a, a tile kind of a thing to rip out a single tile that had been soiled or worn and replace that with a new tile, that's already better from a waste standpoint, right? But today, um, when you when you rip out a tile, there is a collection plan that Interface has where you can literally send it back into Interface. They will grind it up and then create another new carpet tile out of that, that very material. So there's, there's no, or very little, I should say, virgin materials used in that process. Okay. Well, what did you learn when you were making the film about the ripple-on effect to other businesses? You already told about the Italian nylon company, but what other companies? There was one in Georgia with the gas. Um, they stopped using gas and started using landfill gas. But what other ones did you find? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there are um, dozens. And what's been really interesting about it, um, and really part of the reason that, that I wanted to make the film, is that uh, uh, when people hear this story, for some reason, it, it really has an impact on what they believe is possible and on what they believe the game of business is all about. Right. And so Ray Anderson had this epiphany, uh, and then it became a, a, a calling for him, and it became a higher purpose for the company. And and as Ray went around telling this story, his spear in the chest moment became a spear in the chest moment for literally countless other business people. Some notable examples would be Lee Scott, who at the time was the CEO of Walmart. Uh, Richard Branson uh, is a great fan of this story. Paul Pullman, who is the, the former uh, CEO of Unilever. Um, and, and on and on. Uh, you know, there's one of one of the producers of the film is a gentleman named Bill Hayward, who's the CEO of Hayward Lumber. Uh, and after meeting Ray, he went and started a process that eventually led to that that FSC certified lumber. Uh, Bill and his company were instrumental in the early years of making that a known thing in the market. And so. Ray would just give a speech, and there are so many people that I've met since making the movie that tell me the story of the day they met Ray Anderson and what they did in their business after that. And and as you said, the story was much better known in the late 90s. Um, but it kind of, you know, after, after, I don't know what happened, but, but it's just, it, 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 it 
it, there's so many people that are into sustainable business. They're into conscious capitalism. They should know the story cold and they've yeah. never heard of it. And so uh, that's, that's part of the impetus here is to make sure that, that, uh, that, that the business world now, especially the aspiring business leaders that are coming up through the ranks now know this story very well because I think it's very instructive. Right. Well, look, large claims are made in your film about transforming the world economy, about reimagining capitalism and stakeholder capitalism, which I hadn't heard that term before. And I, but I thought unregulated capitalism was really the problem. <laughs> I'm sure it is. Wouldn't most corporations be bankrupt if they paid the environmental damage they do? Yes, they would be. And, and, uh, I think that, that, uh, one of the major problems of capitalism is this myopic focus on financial capital. Um, and that is inherently unsustainable. And if capitalism continues down that road, the consequences are dire. And that's an understatement, right? Um, so, so the way, the way forward, the reason this story matters, I think, is it proves the point that even a global a uh, dirty, publicly traded company, right, which Interface was in 1994. Even that company can, through you know, some very intentional action, become a paragon of, of not just sustainability, but regeneration. Because right now, and this is, you know, Paul Hawken, when, when we interviewed him for the film, he talks about uh, we, we, we don't have, sustainability isn't enough. We, we've only got about a decade and, and we're just not going to make it unless there are companies like Interface that can sequester carbon actively through their activities and buy us more time. Um, and so that's the imperative of the modern moment here. And Interface is the case that you can do that and still have a viable financial model that returns a fair value to investors that, that, that you can win at the game of business without sacrificing the game of sustainability. And that is the, the imperative of this moment. And so for capitalism uh, to, to, I mean, even for capitalism to continue to exist, like never mind the social pressures that are putting pressure on capitalism, but capitalism is built on the free services that nature provides. And if those services erode, there will be no capitalism. There will be no business, right? There, there may not be humanity. Um, and supposedly this decade is the decade where we're going to choose which of those paths we go down, right? So there are amazing models of people that have figured out ways that you can measure financial capital and natural capital and social capital and get all of that onto your balance sheet. And the way that you manage a company when you're looking at all of that actually is more resilient. And in many cases, it is even more profitable than just focusing on financial capital alone. And, and, and we've got to get that message out. And again, the interface story is, is a, just a fantastic proof point of it. Not only is it, it it's the, the Jay, uh, the Jay uh, Gould quote at the end of the film, right? If interface can do it, anyone can do it. And if anyone can do it, everyone should do it. Right. Well, look, it's a, a pretty exciting moment in the United States regarding your new president. And he has said he's taking climate change, climate action seriously. And I wonder, could you just fill us in? What's the latest? What are you observing? You know, in, in manage, you know, things that are actually happening on the ground. I think he said he's going to do it very fast. And thank you. And it, it's, it's all happening so fast that, that I, I don't, I don't know that I've got the most up to date take on it, but, but in, in relief to his predecessor, um, it is, it is a stark difference in terms of, um, 
I, I guess it, 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 the, the big thing for me is that it, it feels like this administration is not really willing to engage in the debate about the validity of climate science or whether this is a thing or not. Um, it is sort of we're going to start with this is a, a, a this is a, if not the major crisis that faces the world today. Um, and and uh, it is our generation's duty to treat it thusly, because if we don't, the next generation may not have the opportunity to do something about it. But what have you noticed that he's doing? What things stick out? Because he's been making declarations hard and fast. Yeah, I mean, the just getting back into Paris on day one is a, a huge step in the right direction. Um, and I think that the I guess for for me and where you might be getting to here, Vivian, is that there there is I think a a kind of two pronged approach here that needs to happen between government regulation, which is essential to make sure that the laggards in this conversation uh, don't sink the whole game, right? Yeah. And really embracing some of the innovative business strategies that are that uh, that that there are you know pioneering companies that are kind of figuring out how to do this. Um, in politics, is the art of the possible, um, and you know unfortunately. In, in the United States and in many places around the world, there's there's a, such a campaign of disinformation on this topic that it makes this politically much more difficult than it maybe should be or could be, uh, which is why, again, stories like Interface, where, where, where you know, there was no there was no regulation that had Interface do what it was. There was no special government incentive. Um, and so so I think that there's a little bit of a double-edged sword where you need to really embrace the innovators that are going to do this because it's smart business, right? This is Ray Anderson's other great quote. So right, so smart. 3CR, here to stay. Well, I, in your history, I really like Franklin Delano Roosevelt's story. And in the middle of the beginning of the Second World War, when America was still holding back and then they got involved, and in a lot of history accounts of him calling in the captains of industry and telling them to turn it around, the phrase is they turned it around on a dime. Everybody knows that there was a great social improvement because of that. There were a lot of jobs created, a lot of, a lot of the racism was sort of sidelined because of that urgency to fight the war and equal jobs for women in, in heavy industry and so on. And I, I just imagine if, if this was going to happen now and they called in companies like Interface, how would that fit in like a Green New Deal we're talking about? Naomi Klein talks about that all the time and she talks about the caring economy. What sort of social impact has Interface already had, and do you think it would have if it was in such a meeting? First of all, as, as I'm sure you're well aware, there is a Green New Deal proposal that's, that's, in the, that's before the U.S. Congress. I, I think that that is a massive opportunity, just a massive opportunity uh, for, for that to happen. And I think that for Interface, the lessons that are between the lines in the Interface story are uh, uh, a, a little bit more nuanced. And this is, this is again, uh, you, you sort of uh, uh, gave me this in terms of kind of looking at a caring economy um, that, that I'm not sure that you can have a sustainable economy from an environmental standpoint, you know, strict PPM on carbon and greenhouse gas equivalents. I don't know that you can do that absent a caring economy. I think that, you know, Paul Hawken, um, in, in his interview, he also was kind of talking about this is inherently linked with social justice and, and and economic justice on a global scale. And so when we were making the film, I had fully intended to have some sort of complementary corporate training or something. And so so when the film was done, I had a chance to talk with Aaron Mizan and Interface about what's needed 
And she said, well, what's not needed is anything else that's a specific program around sustainability measuring or there's, there's yeah. phenomenal work that's being yeah. done in that space. And so there's yeah. no need there. But where there's a need is is empowering these entrepreneurs to be able to lead these change efforts within their companies. And, and you know, for, for a lot of the companies that Aaron has advised, that's that's the, that's where it breaks down, is you have these people that are trying to do these efforts, but they just can't seem to get it through the hierarchy. And Leaf has done it extremely effectively at Harvard. She's studied this for years now, and she's just got an incredible body of work on this. We're talking to Nathan Havey, and he's made this film called Beyond Zero. Now, one of the spin-offs from the Beyond Zero film is that I think you're offering a professional development course and the film is one part of it. What models will you teach about going beyond zero? The, the course that we've created is, is uh, it's, it's called the Intrapreneur Accelerator. And it's a year-long experiential course that's a bit of a mouthful, but it, 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 you, you study uh, Leith Sharp's materials um, uh, in, in terms of entrepreneurship, and then you look at what we consider to be uh, the six essential elements uh, for corporate transformation. Getting to this beyond zero regenerative place in your environmental impacts is one of six. Uh, briefly, the others are making sure that your financial model is sufficient so that everybody throughout the value chain for the business is able to be sufficient, right? They have enough uh, to meet their basic needs at least. And you do that before anybody concentrates wealth and gets rich, which is not at all the financial model of most companies, right? So those two things, you have to have a culture that it helps people to be cared for and grow into the, their best selves. You have to engage your entire stakeholder ecosystem to sort of co-create even your business so that it's not take it or leave it or cut 5% off of that or we're going somewhere else. It's really co-creating uh, that space. Companies have a great role to play in dis deliberately dismantling systems of discrimination that exist in all of our countries. There's this idea that you could do all of that and still think that the purpose of your company is to maximize profit. No, there has to be a purpose beyond profit. Profit is the, is, is, is what fuels the purpose, not the other way around. And so companies getting that right is, is a critical piece of this. And so entrepreneurship, those six distinctions, and then a six month pilot project that they author and run within their company supported by the network, getting your company to be part of a network of sorts. Uh, there is one through the Biomimicry Institute that's called Project Positive, which is a group of companies that are all working to get past zero to a positive environmental benefit. And so it, as far as a roadmap, you're not going to do that in a year. It might take six or seven, but these are the six or seven years that companies must be on that journey if we're going to do what we need to do as a generation. All right. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you for giving us your time and thank you for making your film. I hope listeners will watch that film and maybe join your, what, say it again, the name of the accelerator. Sure, the Intrapreneur Accelerator, and that's <laughs> tough to remember, so if it folks is. need more information, they can go to beyondzerofilm.com. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Vivian. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science, and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved.
Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and the Naro people, and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Thanks tonight to our guests, Emmanuel Capillan and Nathan Havey. Thanks to Daniel Simon from the Transition Film Festival, who helped me get the interviews, and to Michaela and Raoul, who got this show to air. The music tonight was from a French group called La Bamboche and from David Rovix, and we heard his song, If There's a Tomorrow. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. (laughs) 